Well, good morning, Westridge. Glad you're here today. And all those people joining online as well. Um, just a quick show of hands. How many of you um, had friends or family who was directly impacted by Hurricane Ian? Yeah, lots and lots of us. So um, I really just want to uh, have a moment just to kind of pray. There's uh, incredible devastation. I'm not sure it's done yet, but dozens of people lost their life. So I just want to pray for especially Florida and the Carolinas and that East Coast and uh, pray for the people facing so much there. Let's, let's stop and pray for them right now. God, we are um, sometimes not quite sure what to say or pray, not even sure what to ask in moments like these, but we know that you have incredible power and that you have an unending, ending, unending love. And I just pray, Father, that you will do remarkable things that only you can do right now to bring comfort and peace and restoration. God, I pray that your church will rise up. I pray that we will be the hands and feet who help make life better for those who are hurting. God, we are just grateful that you are good and that we can trust that you are, even in moments when doubts come in. Thank you so much that you have created a church where we can be a part and where we can be loved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you guys were here last weekend, but if not, man, you missed some really, really good stuff. I mean, 25 years, it was an incredible celebration. Um, we had some good stuff inside and out. Um, I just want to, you know, Michael and the team, I don't, I'm not really sure when we say, hey, we're going to have a special Sunday, I'm not sure what gear they can kick it into because every Sunday is pretty incredible. So, you know, yeah. So what happened with that, that concert, Best of Westridge, and last weekend services, just incredible. On the outside, um, Melissa Tamraz and a whole team of people just knocked it out of the park with the pregame show, like food and all that kind of stuff before the concert, uh, and then actually for, you know, the picnic afterwards. It was, it was great, fun, great food. I know a lot of you are clapping for yourself because you were part of the people doing that, but thank you. And uh, Melissa is just one of those people. I mean, she's got a superpower of organization and details, so just a great job all around. So thanks for uh, being a part of that. So um, a couple of weeks ago, we just wrapped up a message series about the vision of Westridge and what it is that makes Westridge Westridge. And we were, we were kind of um, developing that idea of our statement, our vision statement says, Westridge exists to help people encounter, embrace, and embody the radical love of God. So those, those experiences of encountering and embracing and embodying are a part of everyone's experience. Our journeys might look different, but that is a part of everyone. But you know, when you, when you come to that embody part, the part that is actually living out your faith, I mean, it feels like there's a, a puzzle, a conundrum there that is tough to figure out. I mean, you look, at, you look at this book and you're thinking, so where do I start? How can I really just grasp what it takes to have a faith that works? A guy asked me one time, he said, what's the most important part of a car? Didn't even wait for me to answer. He said, you know, is it the transmission? 
Is it the, the gas tank? Is it the steering wheel? Is it the right, right rear wheel? And his point was, if you're going to have a car that works, you have to have a few key pieces that are operational. I think the same kind of thing is true of our physical life. So you've probably heard the rule of threes. You know, you can go three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. You've probably heard something like that before. And then there's sleep. Uh, A guy by the name of Randy Gardner, he was a high school student back in the 60s, and he decided he was going to determine how long a person could go without sleep. And his experiment lasted 11 days. He didn't die, so maybe you can go longer than that. So it's a 3-3-3-11 now. But those are absolutely essential things that, requ- that are required for biological life. So what we're looking at today is what is it that's at the core of a spiritual life? Because I absolutely believe that there are a few key things that are critical to a relationship with God that works. To have a faith journey that is healthy and vital involves a partnership, and the partnership is between you and the church. I like how Greg has described it. He said, you know, we're a little bit like Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. And I feel like that's sort of how we want to see the church, that we, more than anything, would love to see your faith flourish and for you to grow and move forward in your spiritual journey. So as a church, we're committed to that, and part of what we want to do is provide the opportunities that allow that to happen. I want you to imagine something for just a minute. Imagine that we go into a health club, okay? So we walk in, and we walk in with the assumption that everyone is there pretty much for the same purpose, and that is they are on a journey to better physical health. I mean, there's a few people that are probably just there to make TikToks, but we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, okay? But when you're on a journey, and it doesn't matter if you're on a journey to better physical health or what it is, there is something about the nature of a journey that creates uniqueness and difference between us. So we all might be on the same journey, for example, toward physical health, but even those people at the health club there are so many differences among them. So for example, the starting point, they didn't all start at the same time. Some people walked in one day and others had walked in a month before or a year before or five years before. Some people haven't even walked in yet. So the people are all different places in their starting point. They're also different in the actual pace of how they're going to go about their discipline of building their body. Some people will be there for a half hour, three times a week. Other people will be there two hours, six times a week. And it makes a difference in their journey. The other thing is, just to be really, really honest, we have different strengths. For some of us, genetics sort of works for us when we're in the health club, and others, uh, maybe not so much. But here's the thing. I think that translates very much into this group right here that we call the church. Because when we talk about the idea of being on a spiritual journey, we've got different starting points. 
We've got different paces. We've got different strengths. And we've got many other differences as well. No matter that we still may have that one common goal of developing spiritually, there are so many, many differences. So as we start this message series today called Journey, I want you to know one thing. This, this is more than just simply a message series. It is. We're going to spend the next few weeks talking through it, but this is something that we want to see as sort of a pathway for Westridge moving forward in how we can engage in our faith so that our faith actually thrives. So if I were going to describe what this is, if I were going to describe journey to you, the simplest way I could say it is this. It's a roadmap of engagement to help you take your next steps in living out a holistic faith in a biblical way. And there are a couple of things that are at the very foundation, sort of the pillars that this rests on And I think with any faith journey, these two things are some of the absolutes. And one of them is meaningful relationships, being connected to people in a way that matters. The other is being able to make a difference in the world, having a purpose that guides our life, that sort of compels us forward, maybe on a day-by-day basis. So from a church perspective, when we think of this, that we have these meaningful relationships and making a difference in the world that needs to be fulfilled in the lives of all of us, we feel like we want to take on this role of helping you find your people for those meaningful relationships and find your purpose to make a difference in this world. So if we're going to look, I want to start by looking, first of all, at this whole idea of finding your people. And I think probably the most basic part of just finding your people is just to simply show up. And I'm talking about at a weekend gathering like this, just to simply show up and and let this be a part of finding your people where you're in community, even if just for a short time, that you're in community with other people. The Bible uh, talks often about the idea of the church gathering. But there's only one place that I know that actually sort of commands it and says, you know, you need to gather. This is essential. This is important. Don't miss it. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and it says, you should not stay away from church meetings as some are doing, but you should meet together and encourage one another. So I don't know exactly who's writing this, and I don't know what's going on in the church that he or she is writing to, but I will say this. This is sometimes one of those verses that pastors like to use as sort of that clobber to say, you know, you need to be at church, attendance is important. And I I just don't think this is a clobber verse. I think when you read it, you can see that's not the intention behind it. I think the intention is more, if you take it a little too casually and you just decide you're just not going to show up very much, you're going to miss out on some of the most important parts of community that the faith journey has to offer. So it can be a very clear part of someone not feeling connected. But what is it? I mean, what is so important about this idea of us gathering together? You know, before Jesus 
Saturday was the day when people gathered. It was a day of rest. It was a day of worship. But when Jesus came, Jesus lives, he dies, and he's resurrected. And now the gathering day becomes Sunday. And why? Because when he died and resurrected, that resurrection happened on Sunday, the first day of the week. And so people began to gather to celebrate the resurrection. Not just celebrating the fact that Jesus had resurrected, but that they were resurrected. They have new life because of what Jesus had done. My wife is from Oklahoma, which means she's an OU Sooners fan. It means she really pays close attention to tornado warnings, and it means she listens to country music. So she was pretty happy when some friends of ours gave us tickets to see Walker Hayes a few months ago. Now, me, I kind of like country music, but I'm not very well versed, and so when I heard that we were going to see Walker Hayes. I thought, okay, I think he's, that, you know, Applebee's on a date night guy. So I knew that song, but I went on YouTube and listening to some songs so I could sort of feel like I could relate at the concert. And I, I, I sort of liked the music, but I got to tell you, it was nothing at all like the experience. Did, did I mention we had the VIP tickets as a gift? So like, we're like, we're front row. I mean, like front row, front row. I mean, we're shaking hands with people. We're like, you know, we're enjoying all of the goodness of that kind of concert. We're hearing the stories behind the music in the pregame show. We're like, you know, um, during the concert, we actually sort of got to see and sort of semi-meet the family of this guy because during the concert, there were two little girls about this tall who were sitting over there on the side of the stage. I could see them. And they were just sitting there like, you know, moving and dancing and enjoying every bit of it. That, those were his girls. And his son was out selling merch in the lobby. And so that kind of experience, and then to be there like, you know, singing and swaying, rubbing shoulders with people, there's something about being able to participate and interact that brings a kind of belonging that doesn't happen in any other way. So showing up, to be honest, really does have a way of making us a part. Now, I want to clarify one important thing because this is important. There's a team here, Eric uh, Zapchink, and a team that he leads does this thing that we call live streaming. And it's, it's an incredible tool because it allows people who can't be here to also be a part of our service. Now, certainly it's a 2D world, so it's not quite the same, but it's extremely important, and here's why. Because many of you, and you know this, before you came and before you stepped foot in this building, you went online and you checked us out on the website to see what kind of thing is actually happening here. You were already finding your people and beginning to connect, and there are other people who, for whatever reason, can't be here, but they are present because they're allowed to show up through this thing called live streaming. So no matter how you do it, keep connecting because it is a huge part. It is a part of the air and water and food and sleep of the spiritual journey. So the other side, if we're talking about this foundation of finding your people, and we've got finding your people in this gathering, the other way that we find our people is through a small group 
So staying grouped, staying with this, and, and we're talking about a group of maybe 10 or, or 12 people, staying in that kind of community is also a gathering. It's just a bunch fewer people. And if you've been here at Westridge for a while, but you just don't feel like you know anyone, maybe you recognize phases, but you don't feel like you're a part of it, that might be because it's a little bit hard when you're sitting in rows for an hour at a time to really truly get to know people. It's not a bad thing. This is an incredible kind of gathering. But it might be a little bit incomplete if that's all you have for finding your people on your spiritual journey. You're probably going to need something else. And for that reason, we, we like to say around here that circles, like those small circles of people that can huddle up in a house, that's a, that that that's offers something completely different than the rows. So circles are different than rows. Not necessarily better, but they great they offer a great compliment. In the early church, if you could go back, when I say early church, I'm talking. Let's go back two thousand years to when the church first began. The church did not have buildings. So when the people were meeting, as, as the Bible t- describes, as the people were meeting, they were huddled together in homes. As a matter of fact, it was 300 years before the church really had buildings. And during that time, the church went from zero to 25 million people just by these groups of people huddling in houses 10 or 12 at a time. If you look in the book of Acts, it sort of describes what they were doing. Acts 2, verse 42, it says, they joined with other believers in regular attendance at the apostles' teaching sessions and at the communion services and at prayer meetings. There's another version that describes this. It says, it was like they were family to each other. The contemporary English version says that. And I think that's so awesome because these are the people that when life went south, These are the people that you would count on to be there and help out. So, for example, when someone was sick, these were the people that maybe brought them a meal. These are the people that prayed for them when they lost a job. These are the people that helped them out when the car broke down, or in their case, maybe the chariot, whatever it was. But these were the people that stepped up. And when someone in their family died, they were the ones that showed up just to be present and to show love. The community that God created was not really designed to be optional. From the very, very beginning, when God was first creating the world, he began day by day in creating these different pieces of our creation. He's creating, you know, plants and animals and all these different things. And all along the way, as he's looking at what he's created, he says, it's good. And then he gets to man. And this is, keep in mind, this is the crowning glory of God's creation because this is what God has created in his own image. And when he's done creating man, he says, it's not good. Now, keep in mind, this is before this, before any sin has marred the relationship between God and people. He says it's not good because the man was alone. It was the most perfect setting, but without other people, it was incomplete because God created us with that need, even that desire to be with people. 
There's a kind of irony here because really and truly, even though we have been created to have a need and a desire to be with people and to have meaningful relationships, it's one of those things that sometimes is so hard and feels so risky to take the step of joining a group or being a part of something where there is a camaraderie in the community that comes from a spiritual journey with God. I don't know what's holding you back, but consider what it might be like if you had the opportunity to be a part of something where the relationships you had were at a different level than the people you work with or play with, people that could talk about life issues, the things that matter like life and death and where we spend eternity. That's something that we need. The other part of this foundation is besides finding your people, there's the idea of finding your purpose, having something that pulls us forward with a meaning for why we live. And one side of that is actually to give back in serving other people. Besides being connected to people, we need that kind of purpose. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it describes that, that need, that desire, and the way that we're supposed to fulfill it. It says, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he always wanted us to live. This is why he sent Christ, to make us what we are, because we were created to participate in the mission of God. There's a guy by the name of Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite theologians. He actually just passed away, I think, in this last year. But he just had a way of communicating that was just, that could just captivate you. And he described how you could know if you have the right calling. And he really was speaking a lot about your vocation or what it is that you would do for a living. But this also applies, I think, to finding a place of serving other people, a place of ministry where you're serving here, what's your calling. He said, the place that God usually calls you to is this. The kind of work is the work that you most need to do and the kind of work that the world most needs done. Makes a lot of sense, right? So he goes on in his example, his illustration of this, and he says, so for example, if you're someone who writes television deodorant commercials, you might love your job. It might be incredibly satisfying and fulfilling, but if you're really honest, is that really, really what the world most needs done? The next example he says is, maybe you're a doctor in a leper colony, but when you're doing it, you're kind of bored and depressed. He says, it may be what the world needs done, but are you convinced that that's what God is calling you to do? He sort of wraps this up and summarizes this in a line that I have, I've known and just can't forget. It's embedded in my mind. He says, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Throughout the Bible, it describes us as a body, the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul is writing about this idea of us being a body. And he's using the illustration of the human body to help us understand the importance of each part, each person 
in this process. He says, our bodies don't have just one part. They have many parts. Suppose a foot says, I'm not a hand, so I'm not a part of the body. Won't, wouldn't the foot still belong to the body? Or suppose an ear says, I'm not an eye, so I'm not a part of the body. Wouldn't the ear still belong to the body? If our bodies were only an eye, we couldn't hear a thing. And if they were only an ear, we couldn't smell a thing. But God has put all sorts of parts of our body together in the way he decided is best. Once again, maybe you've been here at Westridge for a while. Maybe you love the music, and maybe you've heard some messages you like, and your kids love it here. But you just, you still don't really feel like you're connected. This might be the one piece that's missing for you. Because when you find it, and when you are in that, in that place of giving back, it brings a kind of personal fulfillment, something that you were created to do, and it also gives the benefit of everyone else enjoying what you bring to the table as we serve each other. You're needed. And if you're not engaged, you're missing out not only on your God-created purpose, but we're missing you and what you bring to us as a body. The last thing, if you look at this whole idea of purpose, on the other side of purpose is share generously. Now, sharing, to be honest, when it's lived out, includes the act of actually giving. I'm talking about our stuff, our money, sharing the resources that we have. And I know some of you, you got radars up. Uh Uh-oh, we're talking about that money thing. I get it. I've heard those sermons. I know some of those pastors. I know what that pressure feels like. I don't like it either. But here's one thing I want to say. That's not Westridge. We just celebrated 25 years here at this place. And I feel pretty confident saying, you've never once heard anybody stand up here or in anything that's been sent out under the name Westridge heard us guilt, manipulate, or pressure you to give. And that's not just a courtesy because we want to be different. That's because it's biblical. We believe that's exactly what the Bible describes about giving. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, this is Paul writing, and this is the message version, which is very understandable. Listen to how he says this. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your mind what you will give. That will protect you from sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in giving. My friends, that's exactly what it means to be on a journey. We're in different places. We make different choices. We have different starting points. This whole idea of giving, there's not a tax where we're all supposed to give a certain number so that we pay for our spot. This is a spiritual journey, and we choose at our own pace, at our own time, how much we give, how often we give, because that's what it means to be on a journey. But to be really fair and candid, I want to say this. In the teaching of Jesus, 
he knew, he knew that money would have a very strong and strange allure to us. He knew the immense power that goes along with getting and having money. And he knew that many of us would be tempted to think that because we have it, we've got that stuff, that somehow we would have the peace and the security and the comfort that we long for in our life by having that. So when we say that being generous, lived out in the act of giving is one of the essentials of the faith, it's because of this. Learning to let go of the stuff in our lives directly corresponds to how we can and will trust God. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is writing about this whole idea of us trusting God, here's what he says. Don't worry and ask yourselves, will we have anything to eat? Will we have anything to drink? Will we have any clothes to wear? Only people who don't know God are worrying about such things. Your Father in heaven knows you need all these. But, but more than anything else, put God's work first and do what he wants. Then the other things will be yours as well. I'm not overstating it to to say that how we understand and use money is at the very core of faith because that's what God describes in the Bible. And I know that might be a really, really tough step. It might be even tough just to hear. But the truth is, this also is a part of the air and food and water and sleep of a spiritual journey. As we wrap up this morning, I want to say something maybe just a wee bit offensive, but I think it's true of some of us. I think some of us have just enough Christianity to be miserable. You know what I mean? We just have not engaged in a way that our faith feels full and meaningful and vital. I mean, maybe it's changed nothing more than where you spend a few Sundays. And it's possible that you feel stuck or stale or maybe you don't even know that you've started on a journey with God. And if that's the case, I I have a challenge for you today. And by the way, it's not join a group, join a ministry team and start giving the offering. Surprise, surprise. Here's my challenge. My challenge is we're gonna go through these ideas over the next five weeks. And I wanna challenge you just to show up as we kind of unpack these ideas and figure out what it is at the core of having a faith that actually works. Jesus once told a very, very compelling story. He says there was a farmer who was planting seed. It was taken from a bag and just thrown, scattered out. He said there was some of that seed that actually fell on the road, on the pathway, packed hard. The seed didn't even go into the ground. The birds came and ate it, and it was gone. Jesus said there was another kind of seed that actually fell over on this shallow soil, just like really, really thin, and it sprung up quickly, but then it died because the sun baked it, and it just didn't have the roots or a way to survive. He says there was another kind of soil where, as the farmer was throwing it, he said it was on good soil great soil. As a matter of fact, he said it was really, really good until all the other weeds and plants came up around it and they kind of choked the life out because they took the nutrients and the water and everything needed for that plant to thrive. 
This is one of those stories where Jesus actually gives the explanation and he says, here's what that means. You are the seed. And he says, some of you have been planted in a place where there's great opportunity. You have every option to make a faith that works and a faith that's vital. But you're going to have to choose to get rid of those weeds and distractions that are essentially choking the life out of you and not allowing you to develop and grow and have a spiritual vitality that you were created to have. The real question, I think, is this. Will you choose? Will you pay the price? Will you make the sacrifices to have the change that it takes to have that kind of vital faith? Closing with one thought from a pastor by the name of John Ortberg. He summarized this so well when he says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so busy and distracted and rushed that we will settle for a mediocre version of it.